sets out to make a bad movie. True. I love that idea. I love that idea. And as someone who has produced their own film that did not turn out exactly as envisioned, it's so important that when watching anything that is bad, and you know, I love watching bad black and white old movies, MST3K, all of that, that uh, the person did not set out to make something that's awful, right? Now, you could argue that maybe their vision was wrong or that the idea behind the script is somehow flawed. But let's be honest, most failures turn out because of time and money, right? I mean, big studio flops, on the one hand, have less to, I mean, have more to atone for, right? Because they've got a lot of people in the... Except, in, like, go ahead. I think it was uh, when Sony was buying, was it Sony? I think when Sony bought whatever became their motion picture division, mm -hmm. the person who was explaining the industry to the Sony board of directors was something like, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make, you know, 40 movies this year. Um, 20 of them will go nowhere. They'll be flops. Um, eight of them will be, you know, they'll, they'll, pay, they'll pay the bills. They'll do a little bit better than breaking even. And right. then we'll have two blockbusters that are really, really successful. And the Sony board says, why don't we just make more blockbusters? <laughs> and of course, the question is, you don't know which ones are the blockbusters. That's yeah. the problem in the, in the business. You right. think that every one of them has the potential to be a blockbuster. Sometimes halfway through, you begin to realize, oh, this is not going to be a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Maybe it will make back what we put into it and allow us to, you know, go on and do other projects in the future that won't destroy our careers. Right. But you really never know. Mm -hmm. There's a, a scene on the couch with, uh, I can't remember his name now, the English uh, uh, talk show host. Uh, I, I'm old Graham now, Norton? so yes, Graham Norton. I can't remember anything. So, uh, Ben Norton is talking to, um, <laughs> oh my God, the uh, <laughs> four weddings at a funeral. Uh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. He's talking to Hugh Grant about his career, and Hugh Grant tells the story. Of this one time, they they had a great script, the team was great, everyone had chemistry on the set, right? They thought it was going to be a good movie mm. until he sat down and watched the dailies, you know, mm. toward the end, and then he's like, oh my God. This is awful. Uh -huh. They asked him to go and do the, the talk show circuit. He's like, I can't. I can't say anything nice about this film. <laughs> and and the, the studio was pissed. They were mad yeah. at him. Uh -huh. But he's like, no, it, it, won't, it, it won't be good. <laughs> Neither of us will be happy with what I have to say. Right. So he just, he, like, he doesn't speak of it. He, like, you know, doesn't want to, he didn't name the movie. Yeah. 
presumably if you know his oeuvre, you could uh, <laughs> figure out which one it was. Right. But th- that'll happen. You're yeah. like, the, our material is good. The team is good. We're having fun making the movie. Oh, my God, what did we do? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I was going to go on to say that, you know, uh, even with studios, though, there are more cogs to Sabo, right? So uh-huh. studio interference, sometimes poor editing, horrible marketing, something was weird about the lighting, uh, as you say, sometimes just shooting it, you know, all of this can cause a, a film to flop, right? And so with Trek, I feel like we have on more than one occasion kind of uh, gone up against time and money as the saboteur yeah. in yeah. making of a story. Because starting out, like, with this episode, people thought that this was going to be a winner. People thought this was going to be, like, top-notch Trek. So what happened? <laughs> Let's get into it. Start off by introductions. My name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Good love, get prosper. There we go. Well, uh, as I said, uh, you know, people thought that the idea behind this was a great idea. So we bring in the writer, Edward Lasko. Uh, He's never written any Trek. So that's maybe the first sign of like, okay, things are getting a little uh, different now, right? But he had written 33 episodes of the very character-driven show Combat, with an exclamation point. Uh, Originally interviewed as a script consultant, he didn't get that job, but Gene Roddenberry did hire him to write a script. Uh, Again, Lasko pitched the story, and everybody was like, ooh, that's a neat idea. Let's go with that. The problem was is that Gene Roddenberry coming into this season had also said, let's not have anybody write anything this season who hasn't previously written Star Trek. So he went against his own mandate when, uh, when bringing on Lasko here. The idea as originally pitched was uh, it was about children manipulated by the incarnation of pure evil and using the power given to them to unleash the hidden fears buried deep inside the psyche of our Star Trek regulars. Uh, obviously, this idea was too intriguing to ignore. Although, don't don't you feel that this is just a mashup between Charlie X and Miri? Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Both of those were mentioned several times in in back and forth memos between everybody who felt like I kind of did this, maybe. Although it's been two seasons. Mm-hmm. True. And and it it is different. It just familiar. Yeah. Surprisingly, Robert Justman loved the script. Many ideas in the script that were fleshed out uh, right from the get-go were by him. Justman particularly loved the idea that Kirk would have to face his own fear of losing command and thought that Spock should uh, face the fear of losing his emotionality or his control over it. Obviously, only one of these was used. Spock doesn't really uh, deal with his emotionality in this one, but does sort of uh, fight, fight what's going on inside him. In the early draft of the script, the children were found on the planet hungry and frightened since, you know, how would they survive without their parents, you know, giving them food, making them clean up, do all of these things. Uh, but Freiberger thought that this was too dark for Star Trek, especially on a Friday night time slot, and felt that they needed more women to watch to win that time slot, and he didn't want to frighten them. Because apparently research at this time found that women were scared of outer space stories. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out that the villain in this story, Gorgon, 
mm-hmm. has been, you know, in one guy's top ten list of the scariest characters on television. Television. It's a okay. big list. Yeah. Identified the Gorgon as, as number ten on his list. Wow. That's so, fascinating. You know, I'll, I'll go with the idea. The story's scary enough. <laughs> For, for a show that's not a horror show, doesn't right. have any pretense to being scary. Uh, last but, rewrite. But you oh, know, sorry. what you could have done, since since we like to rewrite the episodes. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> what you could have done is, you know, they, they too have a food processing unit, right? Right. And at some point, one of the technicians is like, uh, I, I read with the food, uh, you know, so lucky they had the food processing unit. Yeah, about that. I read what they've been eating. It's like all ice cream and desserts and, you know, breakfast cereal. Nope. Uh, right. Nobody's eating any real food. <laughs> There's no AI attached to that thing making sure nutrition comes up. That's right. Or just hiding it in the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Lasko's rewrite came in sloppy, and Roddenberry suggested maybe we should handle this off to John Meredith Lucas, who was a fast rewriter, but Freiberger said he couldn't afford it and made Lasko do another one. Uh, Roddenberry loves the first part of the story, but then in the second part, it all fell apart for him. Uh, He asks the producers to remember that part of what people love about Trek is the diversity of it all. Uh, He said, so let's have many opinions on the children. whether or not they're involved, or whether or not we should take them to the star base or to the Wakality. And then we're quoting Gene Roddenberry here when he says, we've always played Kirk as welcoming comments and opinion, then having the strength to put an end to it when he has acquired enough differing viewpoints and information to make the decision himself. Which is funny because I feel like that's something you have said <laughs> a lot about Kirk over the, uh, over the yep. years. Later, Roddenberry writes that the episode needs consistency. If children can control minds, Roddenberry says, then why are we? Why do they stick with parlor tricks? Why don't they just make them, you know, you know, fly the fly the vessel, and as opposed to having to make them see things that uh, aren't really there. When the DeForest Group gets a hold of this script, uh, he has much to say about it. Chief among of which was in a draft. Spock was saying something like, "This is a force of evil." They go on to say that is not scientific or logical enough for Spock, so that's when they change it to calling it folklore. They also had Spock smiling in this draft when he watches the kids at play, and of course, they go on to remind the new producer that he would never, ever, ever do this. But it wasn't just the DeForest group that had problems. You you probably could have come up with some kind of look of satisfaction. Yes. You know, he adopts a sage hand gesture, you know, nods. Yeah, it is. It is well that the children uh, play. But it wasn't just the DeForest group that had problems with this episode. It was also Leonard Nimoy himself. He said he went to Fred Fireberger and said, well, we've got some problems with the script. And he said, this script is going to be what Miri should have been. Nimoy says, well, Miri was a lovely story, beautifully told and beautifully played. And we all loved Miri as an episode. And if he was saying that Miri was a piece of trash, well, there's no communication at that point. So that's what that's when death starts to set in. He he ends it with. So uh, Leonard Nimoy in 1986, so well mm-hmm. after the event, uh, reports this as the worst episode in all oh. of Star Trek. Okay, there you go. 
Which uh, is, is interesting, because, you know, we haven't seen Spock's brain yet. <laughs> I know. I know. Another problem with this episode is that the characterizations of the Star Trek regulars were not quite right at this point in the uh, draft. With previous four scripts, Freiberger and Singer were working with material that were written by writers who knew how the characters spoke. Right? We had Gene Kuhn, John Meredith Lucas, Margaret Arman, and Dorothy Fontana. Tidying up after a Star Trek freshman like Edward Lasko was a challenge that the new producer and the new script editor were not yet prepared for. So, like, one interesting example of this, and this this is much more recent. This is 2012. You know, a, a reviewer said, boy, that, that Captain Kirk, he seems mean to the kids. And part of it, I think, is just the difference between a 60s sensibility of where the adults yep. and we're in charge. Yep. Um, and we're going to be brusque with children mm -hmm. and especially I've got a ship to run. Right. So Picard was kind right. of like this, but they kind of made it like a thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas that kind of thing in the sixties, this should have been like, this is perfectly normal behavior. What are we, yes. what are their questions? And, uh, but I do think that we're not getting the character precisely right. Again, this is weekly television. There's a schedule. You know, we're working as fast as we can, often going over schedule. So it's yep. not like they're, you know, they put in a four-day four, four day work week, and, and they probably should have worked on that fifth day. Yeah, we're, we're, we're about to get there. <laughs> I will say this, though, uh, to also that point, is that uh, uh, everything I was reading where the kids loved working with Chatner and loved working with Nimoy. They said that they are, of course, very professional, but that they were treating the kids like, almost like adults. You know, they weren't talking down to them. Right. You know, they were constantly, like, checking in on them. How are we doing? Do you have fun in that scene? Like, so the kids all loved, all loved them. Thought they we were great. The kids, of course, get to play villains of a sort. Yeah, that's true. Which is always fun. The little girl who played Mary had a big crush on Shatner, so she was like his <laughs> little shadow following him around. Very cute. All right, where did I leave off here? Uh, so they bring in Marvin Chomsky to uh, direct this episode. Again, another problem with this episode is, is that they bring in a freshman <laughs> to handle an episode that probably could have used, you know, somebody who was... Uh, somebody who was much more steeped in how you do Star Trek. Let's also remember that it was only a couple of weeks ago that they decided, let's not show the ships to, to Nimoy and Shatner. <laughs> yes. Because they give us too many notes. That's right. But, you know, sometimes that's what you need. Yep. So part of the reason they bring in Marvin Chomsky is because he's a uh, super veteran in TV uh, one of the things that he sort of, one idea that he sort of brought into television was instead of every time we need to do a new setup, every time we need to move the camera and adjust the lights, blah, 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 what if we just kind of rotate the set a little bit? That way all the lights stay the same, uh, but we can just rotate the set as opposed to having to relight everything. So part of what he had learned over his many years was like, how can we shoot everything faster? So they were trying to bring in Chomsky to show, sort of prove to Paramount that, like, even with the best director 
in television, we can't shoot this thing in six days or on the budget that you've given us. Which, which like, puts you in one of two situations. Either they're going to say, all right, we'll give you a little bit more budget so you can spend a little more time or, you know, whatever. Or they're going to say, well, I guess this show just doesn't work as a business model. Thanks, right. but no thanks. <laughs> right. Which, knowing how much they didn't like Roddenberry, that was probably the way they would have gone. It's costing us too much money anyway. Uh, another way he would save time uh, while shooting this episode was that he said that I would sometimes, what I would sometimes do to get coverage is that I would start with an over-the-shoulder shot, and then at a particular point, I'd tap the focus puller and the operator on the shoulder, and they would zoom in and do the close-up as well. So again, we didn't have to relight everything. We could just go in for the close-up. He goes, so obviously we could not do full coverage when shooting this episode, but I got the close-up when I needed them. On the very last day, Chomsky covers 11 pages, but only after running two hours into overtime, which they hadn't done the whole week, wrapping up at 8.15 that night. Despite this, he got his first Star Trek in six days, and of the five episodes now in the can, he also would not go over budget. Obviously, Chomsky would come back. Just a little bit about casting. Casting, uh, Young Tommy, or old Tommy. <laughs> He's definitely the tallest of all the kids there. Yep. Uh, he was 13 years old, and he had previously played Kirk's nephew, Peter, in Operation Annihilate. Of course, he was only on the ground <laughs> at that point. Oh, wait, was he? No, he's found alive in that episode, isn't he? I think he, he gets to the hospital bed. Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. You're right. Uh, another funny story about Craig Hunley is, is that at this point, he was actually a uh, somewhat famous child jazz player and had even released an album and uh, was playing clubs around L.A. And Nimoy and Shatner even went out to go watch him one night. So he, he will end up composing under the name Craig Huxley some more Star Trek music. Oh, really? He will invent a long aluminum bar strung with piano wire and played using artillery shells. It appears in the soundtrack for the first Star Trek film, oh, wow. as well as, so Jerry Goldsmith used it, and mm -hmm. Jack Horner used it in Star Trek 2 II and 3 during the soundtracks. Oh, and wow. Huxley also composed the piece, The Genesis Project, which is the background music that you hear when she's giving the presentation about this is Genesis. Oh, uh, we'll wow. This and we'll be doing that. That, that thing has uh, his music playing behind it. Wow. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So then we come to Melvin Belly, who is <laughs> cast as the villain in this one. Uh, it's a bit of stunt. Stunt casting. Because I don't know if you know this, but Belly was a famous criminal defense lawyer. Yeah. Uh, who had well, done several well-publicized trials. Go ahead. Not just that, but he was he was uh, big in the kind of consumer protection zone. Oh, really? So it's because of him that uh, we established in case law that all products have an implied warranty. That it is that to it is to be foreseen that products will be used by a long chain of people, not just the person who buys it. Mm -hmm. And so that um, accidents that happen down the road are still covered by the implied warranty mm -hmm. and that you need not prove negligence only that the product had some bad effect. 
Hmm. So, of course, we take all this kind of stuff for granted, right? right? You know, something bad happens. We don't need to prove that the company knew it was bad. We just have to prove harm happened. Right. He had also defended Jack Ruby. Yep. The man assassinated with Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, other celebrity and client celebrity clients included Mae West, Errol Flynn, Zsa, Zsa Gabor, Muhammad Ali, and even the Rolling Stones. So I kind of feel like he's uh, in a celebrity lawyer, uh, Hollywood lawyer, this kind of, you know, thing in, in which putting him in a role, he's got connections, right? Right. He knows people. So in the year that this, that the, this episode is made in 1969, uh, a guy calls the San Francisco police, identifies himself as the Zodiac Killer. Okay. And says, uh, I will call in to a radio show if either uh, Melvin Belly or F. Lee Bailey is on the air. So the police contact Belly and, and a radio host, hoping that he'll be on the phone long enough for them to you know, find out where the call comes from. Mm-hmm. He ends up calling the show like 54 times. He says a, a, just a few words and then he hangs up. And then later on that year, Zodiac sends a letter to Melvin Belly, basically a plea for help. You can uh, you can see it on Melvin Belly's Wikipedia page. He says he can't control himself. <laughs> He'll kill again. Wow. Yeah. So this guy's he's he's got a, a kind of a storied career. Yeah, definitely. And he's the Gorgon. <laughs> Well, apparently he told an interviewer for Playboy magazine that if he hadn't become a lawyer, that he might have chosen acting as a profession. So three years after that interview, here he is playing the Gorgon. Yeah. Joe Diagosta, the casting director, said, this was not my idea. (laughs) I didn't even support it because I hated hiring non-actors and taking away jobs from working actors. I resisted it for that reason. I made the call. I had to coordinate the deal, but the idea came from the production office. I guess it was Freiberger who came up with this. It was what we called stunt casting back then. And then we used to do it to draw people to the show. And honestly, it did create a lot of interest. James Dewan says this, Marvin, Melvin Belly did not know how to act. How in the hell did he ever get this job? I don't know. Was he someone's friend? But Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, But he goes on to end it with, this is the sort of thing that went on in the third year when Gene wasn't looking after things anymore. Dun, dun, dun. More to come. Yep. Also, also, Melvin Belly was a guy who didn't understand how TV worked, finding his marks or even memorizing the script. The first time he was on stage, uh, he was just riffing, you know, because that's what lawyers tend to do. Like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to say, but here's kind of how it goes. Chomsky explained, like, you got to learn your lines as written so that everybody, all of us surrounding and the other actors know what to do. So they went off to shoot something else. They came back. He knows his lines, but did not deliver them very well. Gene Roddenberry, after watching the episode, says, are we going to do something with his voice? Because we need to do something. We need to make him a little more menacing. Maybe we can put, like, a crazy little, you know, uh, voice thing on it, which they do, obviously. Uh, But this this is not working. They didn't on this tight schedule that they had. At this point, Gulf and Western had somebody on set who was like, you're not shooting fast enough. 
You know, it's like, oh, you, you ended up a page and a half behind what you were supposed to do today. It was like that. That's how crazy it had gotten. But obviously on this tight shooting schedule, um, they had no time to like really hone the performance. It was like they did two or three takes and had to move on. Right, right. That's why you want professionals. That's right. The show also starts to take a less cinematic feel in the season because Jerry Finnerman, the cinematographer, was asked to brighten the show up and use less colors. When the show eventually aired, uh, two big movies were uh, playing at the time, one of which was Rosemary's Baby, the second of which was finally The Green Berets, starring and directed by John Wayne and featuring Star Trek's own George Takai. So it was kind of a quick overview of um, <clears throat> what went wrong, quotations, around this episode. Uh, Osborne kind of breaks it down uh, and says, you know, first, Gene Roddenberry assigned the script to a writer with no Star Trek experience. Uh, the story selected, although a good one, was never going to be allowed to develop to its full potential due to network interference. Evil manipulating children and mass suicide of their own parents, the censors would have had much to say about this. And they did, uh, removing plot points and ordering down watering down dialogue. Ron Berry also picked a producer with no Star Trek experience, which was also a problem. Uh, with Ron Berry's approval, that producer hired a story editor who had no past experience with the series. Although I, I never got the impression that the children killed their parents. The impression you did? I, I totally did. No, the impression I got, um, especially in the scene where Kirk goes into the cave, is that the children were not uh, affected. That the, 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 the evil dude, the Gorgon, yeah, realized he could use the children. He didn't need to. He, so he kills the parents, or he's he's menacing. He's you know, Kirk goes into the cave and feels all anxious and weird. I mean, imagine that over six months or whatever. And they go crazy, right? Right. Um, and kill themselves. And the adults mm -hmm. realized that there was an alien presence compelling them and influencing them. And they yeah. thought, oh, my God, this is awful. We are, we are doing things. We are calling for Starfleet to get us a ship. We're, yep. you know, doing this, that, and the other things. We need to kill ourselves before, at, at some point, the Federation actually does send us a ship. And we take this alien presence with us to some unsuspecting large colony. Mm -hmm. That was the sense I got. And that the kids, oblivious to it all and easily manipulated, were kept alive. Mm -hmm. Not that the kids had killed the parents. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess it did feel a little more like suicide or something. But I don't know. For me, it also had the underpinning of like the kids were influencing the suicide. But I guess, you know, like in the cave, like you were saying. Yeah. Well, you know, there there's that meme where you have the little girl smiling and that like house on fire behind uh -huh. it. The fact that you you show up on the planet, the parents are all dead, and the kids are dancing around and playing and playing tag. Yeah, gives you that kind of a vibe. Yeah, but I think it's because as as McCoy points out, they did not understand what had happened. Mm -hmm. Like a combination of the shock of what really happened and the malevolent influence of the Gorgon character, you know, manipulating them. But the, the, 
the Gorgon at one point does say, like, you guys know how to do this. Remember what happened on the planet? You're going to do that again, you know? Yeah. But um, he, in that case, he's not trying to get the crew to kill itself just to, like, do what they're asking. Yeah. Deliver the goods. I think, I that's true. I think the parents had been influenced, because they actually say it, right? That, right. like, here I was thinking I was going to summon the Federation to send us a ship. He was doing it. It wasn't like the, um, he wasn't saying, and my kids were making me do it. <laughs> that's true. And so once they realize that they have a, the alien influence, I think they, they decide we have to kill ourselves. Hmm. It's the only way to stop this alien presence. Uh, just to wrap up these last little like trigger points, uh, Fred Freiger and Robert Justman obviously also chose a director with very little Star Trek experience on a script that probably needed the most Star Trek <laughs> experience behind it. Uh, also, we know that Freiberger hired a not very good actor to play the stories heavy. And lastly, of course, the but budget But I think cut. that worked. I mean, it, it may have been a pain for them to make uh -huh. it, but I think, he, I think it worked. All right. Well, Certainly, uh, if you wanted to get the uh, one of the 10 most scary characters ever on television. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. All right. Well, that's all I got on behind the scenes. Let's uh, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Starting 5029.5. Responding to a distress call from a scientific colony on... Now, I did not hear Triacus the first time. I heard, I thought it was like Viagras or something. I was like, <laughs> uh, so now we got, I don't know. Anyway, uh, they arrive and everyone's dead. Everyone except for one doctor, of course, Dr. Starnes, which again, I did not hear Starnes. I heard Dr. Star and I'm like, wow, they did not put any thought into that name, did they? Dr. Star. Uh, I'm and he should... scientist here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Dr. Starnes should have recognized Kirk, but somehow didn't. And it's not long before he crumples into a heap and falls onto the ground. Kirk mentions that uh, he should have shown who he, uh, he should have known who he was, but he but he didn't know. They take the man's tricorder and rush over to a woman. They roll her over and they pull a capsule out of her mouth. Kirk smells it. And then, with just a look that says, is this what I think it is? He hands it over to McCoy. McCoy says, Sciolatin. Self-inflicted follows up Spock. Kirk checks the tapes on the tricorder, and hears a man screaming. We must kill the enemy within, he says. Self-inflicted, says Kirk again. Suddenly, they hear children laughing in the background. They come running in around the dead bodies, as if they're not even there. They stop in front of Kirk and the gang and introduce themselves. They then play Ring Around the Rosie twice as we Which go to I commercial on a computer. A super apt game to play. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Knowing the so story like, behind that and the plague and everything. Yeah, it's about the plague. It's about when all of a sudden everyone just <laughs> drops dead. Because that's like mm -hmm. the end of Ring Around the Rosie, Pocket Full of Posy, Ashes to Ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> We get the opening credits, and then back to it. We come back from commercial to the bodies gone 
and the headstones in their place. The children in the gang stand around looking at them. Now, this is interesting. Shouldn't, like, have they maybe done an autopsy on these bodies, wrapped them up, taken them back up to the ship, or just an idea? I don't know. And why bury them on this planet where... I'm certainly willing to assume that McCoy did whatever kind of analysis he did and said, yep, they killed themselves. Fair enough. Yeah, obviously, some time has has passed. And I kind of feel like the whole little bit scene where they find the capsule... Uh, identify the poison, and then say it's self-inflicted, kind of gave us what we needed to know. Yeah. Any, you know, additional, you know, scanning, oh, it's true for all of them. I detect, you know, the the poison in all of their blood. They killed themselves. Okay, well, we've beaten that horse to death. (laughs) That was another thing that uh, uh, the DeForest group had found, that in one of the drafts they had written that a, uh, a guy had taken a phaser to his to his head and shot himself but the divorce group was like every time we see a phaser they disintegrate so that would include this guy's head <laughs> so that's why they didn't include somebody killing themselves that way everyone here has been deeply affected by what's happened well almost everyone the children quickly break away and start running and playing McCool- i don't know what that was <laughs> mccoy believes that the children are in some form of shock Kirk can't believe it, but even Spock says it is amazing what humans are capable of believing. Okay, capable of believing, like, whatever they want to believe. Yeah. I, I feel like that ought to be a meme for, you know, like, the past two years. <laughs> yes. Bones thinks it's some sort of amnesia. Their poor teeny brains can't deal with what they've witnessed. But forcing them to realize what's happened could push them over the edge, he says. Kirk tells the kids, it's time to go up to the ship. Oh, but they don't wanna. Spock and Bones discuss what's happened. Spock thinks that something has induced the hysteria in the parents who died. Perhaps something chemically? And the children are immune or spared by conscious choice, says Kirk. And then suddenly, without touching it, for some reason, Spock's tricorder begins to buzz. Something is coming from the cave. So into the cave they go. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. The scan proves that there is something here, but he's not sure what it is. Suddenly, Kirk starts to feel a little weird. It's like a heavy anxiety. Maybe that's what his tricorder is picking up. I am unaware of the tricorder being able to pick up any kind of anxiety, says Spock. Of course, says Kirk. It's me. But what is causing your tricorder to react? Kirk then runs out of the cave and almost immediately feels better. Kirk decides this time. And I, I, I would guess that they would have detected many, many occasions in which the tricorder has unusual readings and like dogs bark or people are anxious or, yeah. you know, because we know that like, oh, my knee hurts. Storm must be coming. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, your tricorder could be like, yeah. You're right. I, I detect a low pressure system and incoming precipitation. But my knee aches. I knew it already. Or the dog barks, earthquake happens. Right. Or in this case, there's some stimulus which both presents readings on the tricorder and anxiousness in the captain. Yep. And Spock's just not in touch with himself, so he doesn't he doesn't recognize it. 
Kirk decides to return to the ship. Let's look at the tricorder and then question the children, no matter what McCoy says. Chapel then is in the rec room? The Arboretum? I don't know where she is. They're in the, the mess. In the mess hall with a, a very nice park or something in the middle of it. I don't know. Sure. Uh, she's there with the children and she offers them ice cream. McCoy tells us that everything seems to be fine. They're not lying, but they're acting like they don't know what's happened. McCoy encourages Kirk to tread lightly. Kirk then enters and sits at the kitty table. He asks for a scooch, a scooch, a scooch of ice cream. It's not actually what he asked for, but it was about that much, a scooch. Uh, it's funny because this, you know, we always talk about how, you know, dad is Captain Kirk. And so uh, I, I particularly felt dad vibes in this scene. This feels very much like dad doing the children's sermon or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He finds out from the kids that their parents actually like the planet. One of the kids says, but parents like stupid things. Chapel says, well, not all stupid things. They liked you. That's what you think, says one of the kids. Kirk follows with, of course they did. That's why they brought you with you. Yeah, Otherwise, so like he's totally you. thinking like 1960s adult, right? Right. But they, they labored hard for your benefit. They provided you with the necessary goods and sustenance. Right. Why would they do that if they did not care for you? This is why we work so hard for our children. The kid's like, but I wanted you to play ball with me. <laughs> right. I didn't want you to work hard for me. I wanted you to spend time with me. And that's why we have all kinds of different parenting today that we did back in the Exactly. Because of Captain Kirk. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it is perhaps an overcompensation. Oh, yeah, I think it's definitely an overcompensation. There's like some happy median between uh, I worked, you know, very hard in the city with an hour commute. Yep. So I never saw you, but I put, I put food on the table in this nice house and a good school, and I bought you a bicycle every two years. Mm. What is there to complain about? I never saw you. Yeah. Versus the, you're my best friend. <laughs> well, it's so funny, too. I mean, I've thought about this, obviously, uh, just in general but you know if you think about coming out of like you know the 1880s the 1890s farmers homesteaders all these people who like that that was the father's job was to literally go out you know make the food bring back the food and yeah. you know it was a hard life but the kids are helping too. you know we go from that into you know a little more urban urban views of things but it's still but that mentality you know is still like i'm going to provide for you i'm going to bring all that in that happens into the 60s into the late 70s so that by the time you get to the 80s you know and obviously like your career is your life and all of that thing what the 80s turned into it's it's very interesting to see then the reactions the reactions from everything that's come before this is you know what we're seeing now in parenting kirk gets no reaction from the otherwise they would miss you and so he responds with you know, just like you'll miss them. The kids just look at each other and don't respond. Then the oldest boy starts saying, bzz, bzz, and then they all join in, flying around like bees. Then the but little girl tries... Bees. What's that? I mean, there's, there's chapel guesses that they're bees. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be the right answer. Mm. Yeah, it does sound more like they're saying busy as opposed to bzz. Well, we do, we do get that too, right? Right. They're busy like bees, but they're buzzing like bees. 
little girl then tries to sting Kirk. Uh, he just picks her up. And he's about to scold her when the oldest Sonny peps up and says, hey, can we have more ice cream? You'll ruin your dinner, says Kirk. See, that's what they all say, says Tommy. That's why you should give them uh, all the ice cream they want until they vomit. <laughs> and then you're like, that's what happens when you eat too much ice cream. Ice cream is a, is a dessert. A little bit of it is yummy, too much of it, and there's a pile of vomit on the floor. I need you to clean that up now. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk sends the rest of the kids to bed, but keeps Tommy behind. Kirk tries to ask him what happened on the planet, but Tommy says he doesn't know. His dad was always upset, just like you, says Tommy. I'm not upset. I like you and your friends. Why would I have invited you up here if I didn't like you? You have your reasons, says Tommy. Aren't you sad to leave Trichus and your parents? They're happy. They're always busy. So you got to wonder now at this point, does this mean the boy doesn't know they're dead? We never really get an answer about this, about the what they know and what they don't know. He asks, uh, he asks if he can go to his room now, and Kirk lets him go. He then posts a guard on the children and tells them to keep them under surveillance. Inside the kids' quarters, they start chanting in a circle and summoning someone. And no one is like, there's a communication coming from within the ship. <laughs> right? Maybe it's unreadable. I don't know. Uh, when that someone box sensors. That's right. Right. Exactly. Or used his tricorder. Uh, when someone appears, it's a it's an old man in a big outfit. The old man talks kindly, but strangely to the children. Step one is down. You have boarded the Enterprise. Step two, we have to wait. Make our way to Marcos Twelve. Don't settle for what Captain Kirk wants. On Marcus 12, he says, there are millions of people to join us, and the rest will be our enemies. Who is this gay? He goes on to say that the best way is to take over the Enterprise, which you now know how to do. As you believe, so shall you do. The children pound their fists as we go to commercial. So do you remember uh, The Naked Now? where in order to establish for the audience that someone has gotten a disease, they're going to rub their hands like they're sweaty. Yep. Right? And then we're going to hear that clicking or that chirping noise that... Yep. A little chime. Uh, yeah. And I think that, like, this business with the, the arm is that thing, right? Yep. It's there, exactly. it's there to show us, the audience, oh, he's uh, doing his uh, arcane gesture. His, you know... <laughs> right. His eldritch arm movements are, are what establishes the commands over the people's brains. Because, I, you know, if you were acting, if you had some kind of weird, you know, somatic gestures, we'd all be like, what are you doing, casting a spell? What are you, a Jedi walking around waving your hand like that? <laughs> exactly. Well, he rolls, uh, you know, Charlie X would roll his eyes up into his head. That's how you knew yeah. he was doing his magic or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Back and at when it? It's, oh, when it's okay. subtle, when it's really subtle, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's the kind of thing where you can just overlook. Like, maybe he, he does a thing, right? Right. But I, I thought the gesture was a little too broad for us to believe that no one's like, what the hell are they doing with the arm? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did think that a few times. I'm like, oh, yeah. why isn't nobody stopping them? <laughs> Clearly, they're up to something. Nor, nor do they even comment on it. Yeah. Right? 
Back at it, we're on the bridge, and Spock arrives, having pulled most of the information, uh, important information, off to Dr. Starn's tricorder. We find that Dr. Starn has felt a growing sense of uneasiness since landing. He then finds he is not the only one. The only one who were not affected were the children. In another log, we hear the uh, that his anxiety is growing worse. And in the last log, we find out that there was a lost civilization that was lost to a natural catastrophe. Then Tommy comes onto the bridge. The log continues as if it's some kind of growing force in the cave that is... And that's all we hear because Tommy begins to pound his fist in his hand and the screen goes blank. <laughs> and as I write, of course, no one saw Sonny doing his, his thing. Yeah, because that's the kind of thing you'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> right? What did they you do? Just, they all just assumed that Elkar's 98 crashed, so... Tommy then approaches uh, Kirk. He asks if they can be taken to Marcus 12, insisting that he has family there. Kirk twice insists that it's out of their way and that they can't take them. Tommy then asks to remain on the bridge, questionable, while Kirk and Spock go down to Kirk's quarters. He tells Leslie to keep an eye on Tommy, who does a great job of it. Tommy then makes his way down to the helm to uh, Sulu, who says hello to him. And then Tommy starts shaking his fist again. Sulu exits orbit. But Sulu continues to see Trachis on the screen. Or Triacus. Triacus on the screen. But now I ask, what about Uhura and the two guards and anyone else on the bridge? How do they not see what's happening here? Do they not see the Triacus? Uh, that they moved from Triacus? Or do they just assume that Sulu got some kind of orders? Ah, but just after I type this, Uhura does in fact notice. But she, too, is tricked into seeing Triacus. We still have to wonder about everyone else. Down in engineering, this isn't engineering, though. I thought it was engineering, but it's actually the second control room. Why anybody is there, we don't know. But down in uh, the second control room, we find another boy uh, has entered the room and starts to shake his fist. We don't know what he has accomplished until Scott walks into the room and looks at the controls. He asks the navigator why we left orbit. The navigator says, we're still in orbit. Spock says, what are ye, blind? The navigator says, I would not disobey an order from the bridge. But you are disobeying an order from the bridge, says Scott. Yeah. You know, it, so, like, to make the... If, if we wanted the ruse to go longer, right, you have the guy in the control room go, the captain ordered us to Starbase 4 to drop off the children. Or, you know, whatever Kirk said that they were going to do. Right. Because he had said, said we're going to drop them off at the nearest Starbase or Starpost yeah. or... Or Star Hostel, I forget what he said. So you, if he just said that, Scotty probably would have been like, oh, I hadn't realized the order had been given to leave already. All right, well, carry on. <laughs> exactly. But instead we get this little tussle. And then, of course, when they come back, Scotty's under their control as well. Well, what I have to ask about this point is that isn't Scott higher ranked? I mean, shouldn't this guy just concede to what Scott is saying? He didn't actually get an order from the bridge. I guess he maybe thinks he did, but... Well, I think I think the part of the problem, and I attribute this to the fact you've got kids, uh -huh. right? Kids don't know how to set up an elaborate lie that has layers to it, right? True. Uh -huh. So instead, they're like, "I need you to see that we're still at Triacus, so you don't ask any questions." So everyone else is like, "Well, the evidence is clearly not that we're at Triacus." And instead of you giving me an explanation that sounds plausible, you tell me something that's just totally not true. Right. 
Well, my other thought too is that shouldn't shouldn't Scott have just called Kirk and been like, "Did we leave orbit?" Well, yeah, because you. But what I think one of the things they want to happen is they want to get to that scene where they beam the guy down into space. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't have happened if if Scott had if they, the guy had told Scott, "No, Captain said we're going to Starbase Four to drop off those kids." Oh, okay. Well, you know, carry on. Uh, outside in the hallway. Ah, oh, Captain. How come uh, you didn't tell me we were going to be leaving orbit? I, you know, may have been doing stuff with the engine or whatnot. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Scott, we're still in orbit. No, we're not. Clearly, I saw the, the readings. Well, in that case, I'm not going to beam down these dudes. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so Scott throws the other guys off the controls, but then the other uh, guy who is in the, in the room... Uh, comes and pulls Scotty off of that guy. Scott is then knocked out. Dun, dun, dun. Back in Kirk's quarters, we see uh, Dr. Starn saying he's being influenced to do things that don't make any sense. He says that he called Starfleet asking for a transport ship, but he couldn't tell them why he needed, what needed to be transported. So you said. That simple level makes it sound like it was kids, not that the guy had been working directly through him. Right. He then says, we must kill ourselves. The alien is among us. The enemy from within. Which I so think I is think, a way better title, by the way, for this. It's episode. a great title. And I think it would have been a better title than And the Children Shall Lead. Yeah. But I guess we so, used it already. Yeah, so I think... That's evidence that they, too, were being influenced directly by the dude. Huh. But I, I think what was happening is when that dude would directly influence adults, you'd just get anxiety, right? It's, right? He wasn't able to control them. He could control kids, and kids could control them. But when he tried to control them, all they would do is go, ah, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being manipulated. I feel like, you know, something's wrong. This isn't right. good. What's going on? Why do I feel like I want to, you know, poke that person with the scissors? <laughs> this isn't right. The enemy within, we must stop. You know, right. so on. Spock surmises that whatever it, it was worked quickly within the group. Otherwise, Starnes would have given us more. He was a seeker of the truth. Evil does seek to maintain power by suppressing the truth. You want to Talk about what's happened in the last couple of years. I think that's a great way. <laughs> this also point out. seems on point. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, moving on, McCoy uh, continues the thought with, uh, or by misleading the innocent, says McCoy. This makes Kirk wonder if somehow the children are involved. Spock relates the history of Triacus by saying that there were some marauders who were at constant war with everyone uh, until they were taken out by those who they had preyed upon. But that's not all that is said. It is said that evil is waiting for a catalyst to send it marauding across the galaxy again. So we are dealing with a malevolent force here and not some kind of scientifically answerable creature, I wonder? Question mark? guess so. McCoy again then warns Kirk... When they're dealing with a malevolent force, it turns out to be a glowing ball of light. Right. This turned out to be a glowing dude... <laughs> but, you know. Of light. <laughs> yeah, but he's a glowing thing. Yep. He's all glowy. 
McCoy again warns Kirk that he must uh, first release the grief that exists within inside these children, or we are treading on dangerous water. Kirk orders. Okay, so this is I, I checked this. Kirk orders that the detachment that is on the planet be beamed up, and that we're going to beam down another detachment to see if either of them see or feel anything. Okay, so then in the transporter room, they beam down uh, the next security detachment, but. Uh, uh, but of course, they're not orbiting Triacus. They beam those people out into space. Dun dun dun. Kirk calls up to the bridge, but Sulu insists that they are still orbiting the planet. Cut to the kids doing the ritual again, this time on the bridge. <laughs> All right, it's stuff like this that just makes kids creepy. <laughs> Uh, Kirk then rushes onto the bridge just in time to see uh, the creature man guy thing appear as we go to commercial. So this is <laughs> this is a stupid thing that I've noticed since I was a little person watching TV back in the day. <clears throat> and it's really obvious in this episode. Um, but whenever an effect is used on the film, on film, uh, like the screen in the briefing room, right? Whenever we see that, or when it even just the fade to black, the film becomes wildly grainier. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not 100% sure why this happens, this could be one of two things, I think. Number one, the first one being uh, just overlaying two pieces of film with grain over the top of each other. So now we have twice as much grain. Right, exactly. And then I'm also sure just handling the film, right? I mean, using yeah. all the gloves and everything that you can, it's still gonna, there's still going to be some dirt and other things that are going to appear uh, when this happens. And even later, when the Gorgon appears towards the end, you see, like, hair in the middle of his effect and whatnot. I'm like, whoops. Oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> and also, if you've never seen it before and now you go back and watch it, you're never going to unsee it. So, I'm sorry. It's uh, just, you know, the... So, like, there's a channel, a YouTube channel. Uh-huh. It's I think it's actually called You Can't Unhear This. Uh-huh. And I've never, like deeply explored the channel but right. i've seen numerous examples of what he shows basically uh technical errors in beatles recordings oh uh-huh like here's the part where they go from this you know from session 17 to session 19 you know to point it out and once you hear it theoretically of course you can't unhear it right 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 but, Also, at this point, we're only 30 minutes into the show, and the characters are meeting the bad guy for the first time. You might have thought this was the climax, but no. There's still a half a show to go. Back in it, we find out that Gorgon is his name. He only speaks to the children and ignores everyone else, telling them that uh, they've been found out. But it's too late. The ship is already under the children's control. And if anyone resists to call upon the beasts to stop them, the beasts that re reside within just like on Triacus. Kirk tries to regain control of the ship by telling Sulu to, uh, to head to Starbase 4, but on the screen, all Sulu can see are giant swords. He's worried about piloting around them. Kirk then tells Ahura to contact Starbase 4, but suddenly there's a mirror there for some reason, and Ahura uh, is now seeing, uh, seeing her death as she puts it, and Kirk can't snap her out of it. He tells Spock to make the call to Starbase 4. 
He then turns to tell Sulu to make the changes to the course. But as predicted, Sulu is afraid of steering the ship into the giant swords. Because that's a problem in space. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure the shields won't stop a sword. I, I like, like, later on you get the scene where uh, Chekhov, you know, I'm going to, Starfleet has ordered me to arrest you. And I forget whether it was Kirk or Spock says, where did you hear this order? And they get confused because right. they haven't gotten an order because no one laid the predicate. Yeah. Right. They just said, go down and tell them that Starfleet has ordered their arrest and arrest them. Not uh, 10 minutes ago, you received an order from Starbase 12 where Commodore right. Smith has uh, brought up Kirk on charges of, you know, X, Y and Z. Uh, incidents that you recall from his uh, mistreatment of the crew. You know, and I, you'll be going down there to bring him to justice by arresting him and then bringing him up to court-martial. Right. Uh, well, part of it is they don't know how Starfleet works, right? So they can't be like, the person who would call would be a Commodore, and this Commodore would be a Starbase. <laughs> and like, this kind of stuff. They're kids. They don't know anything. Right, right, right. They're like, said funny looking grown up <laughs> called and said right you guys are bad uh, what were the charges check up I, I, I don't recall that you're bad, said you were bad. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and you'd imagine the same thing could happen with sulu in this situation you'd go uh sulu tell me about your starfleet training back at the academy for seeing large blades in space i, I don't believe i've had such training sir <laughs> so now, work with me here, Sulu. <laughs> yeah, right, think, exactly. Do you think it's more likely that we've discovered an unknown phenomenon in space <laughs> full of blades? <laughs> or is someone screwing with your mind? <laughs> right. Because you can imagine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to sick bay. <laughs> Something is clearly wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's like something a child might come up with. Right. Well, Kirk then turns around and Spock then asks, why were we bothering Starfleet? Kirk tries to get him to come around and almost does get Spock to see what's happening. But stupid little Tommy does his fist pound again and, stocks, and Spock stops. You can see he's fighting the suggestion, but says that I cannot obey your order, Captain. <laughs> now, based on what you just said there, Spock stops stirring the stock pot. <laughs> they left my that. I couldn't even say Spock stops, so I'm not even going to try to. <laughs> Kirk then asks Leslie to uh, take Sulu to his quarters, but Leslie doesn't understand him. Here we get a lot of Black Lodge speak happening as Kirk <laughs> is speaking backwards. Leslie doesn't even look like he's even trying to understand what's happening. So this is what he actually says. Remove Lieutenant Uhura and Mr. Spock to the bridge. Confine them to quarters. Did you hear me? Take Mr. Sulu to his quarters. He's relieved of duty. Remove Lieutenant Uhura and Mr. Spock from the bridge. Confine, unintelligible. Take Mr. Sulu to his quarters. Unintelligible. Mr. Spock from the bridge. Confine them to quarters. Mr. Leslie, take Mr. Sulu to his quarters. And then they just ran it backwards. Right. But, you know, if you're accustomed to listening to Beatles songs backwards... You might have tried this on the episode. Spock, of course, is also trying to fight whatever is garbling the speech for him. 
Kirk then realizes that he can't fight it and rushes towards Tommy, but Tommy pounds his fist again, and Kirk starts feeling the pain. Spock realizes this and says, we got to get off the bridge. On the turbo lift, Kirk yeah, now so almost... This is the first case where someone's like, okay, someone is messing with us. Let's, you know, at least move locations. Like, we got out of the cave. Right. Kirk now, almost weeping, says he's losing command. I'm losing the Enterprise, he says. We get another perfect Shatner performance here. Spock then pulls him back from the brink. Kirk says, let's head to auxiliary control. That's where that's where Scott and the other engineers are, as I say. Uh, so this does... So the kids don't know anything about Starfleet, right? right. They can't tell you that the Commodore is going to contact us from Starbase and... and uh, court-martial proceedings are, you know, bound to proceed. Instead, they're just like, go and arrest him. Why? Haven't thought of that. <laughs> but they do have the good sense to not only commandeer the bridge, but the auxiliary bridge. Right. That's Which we can assume was Gorgon. Maybe. Possibly. Like, so Gorgon has all this knowledge of how Starfleet ships work? <laughs> well, somebody does. Yeah. Kirk tells Scott to get us back on course for Starbase 4, but Scott won't have it. These are sensitive instruments, he says. Oh, the they're the very corner. delicate. <laughs> yes. The boy in the corner shakes his fist, and Scott tells them, leave or I'll kill ya! Kirk makes for the controls, but he and Spock are both stopped by the three men. They shove them off and back out of auxiliary control. Spock then tells Kirk what he should surely know by now is that the children are the evil aboard the ship. Without followers, evil cannot exist, says Spock. They don't understand the evil that they're doing, says Kirk. Perhaps that is true, but that which is within them is spreading fast, and unless we can find a way to remove it, we'll have to kill them ourselves. Dun, dun, dun! Yeah, I don't get the impression that anybody else is evil, just that they're delirious. <laughs> Could be, yes. You know, the, so we've convinced Mr. Scott that his, his equipment is so delicate. It's basically like vacuum tubes and like, well, if we turn the <laughs> dials too quickly, something will snap off and break. And, right. And then like antimatter will pour in and the ship will explode. We have Mr. Sulu thinking that like the ship's course is surrounded by like an array of antique knives. And if we bump into them, they'll cut the ship right in half like it's butter. Right. Yeah, so these people aren't evil. They're just delirious. Mm -hmm. They're cuckoo for Copo, Cocoa Pops. Chekhov then arrives to arrest Kirk on Starfleet's orders. Listen to me. This order is false. Return to your stations. This, by the way, is the lead for the trailer. The televised trailer. Oh, really? Is it? Yeah, so you see Chekhov walk up with the two guys and go... You're under arrest. You know, Starfleet have orders to arrest you. And it's like, you know, bum, bum, bum. And then, like, as the trailer goes on, you realize that, oh, this is not an episode in which Kirk gets arrested. But it does start that. That's what they start with. Very exciting. I must insist, Captain, says Chekhov. Kirk then tries to make another attempt of getting out of this, but Tommy's in the background shaking his fists like he does. Check out as pulls one his does, phaser. as yep. you do. 
Chekhov pulls a phaser on Kirk. Struggling, Chekhov says he'll kill Kirk if he has to. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. Back at it. A yelling match ensues between Chekhov and Kirk until the boiling point is hit and Kirk and Spock attack together. Tommy stands in the background shaking his fist as the fight continues. Chekhov is knocked out first as Spock and Kirk continue to take on the others. Spock then hand pinches one while Kirk is about to punch the other. Tommy, now realizing he's lost, runs off. Spock then, with the phaser in his hand, takes the other three to the brig as Kirk heads off to the bridge. On the bridge, Tommy is smiling in Kirk's seat. Mary stands behind Sulu and some other guy who took Chekhov's place. Kirk says to the children, the Enterprise will never make it to Marcus 12. The children insist that they will. The crew believes us, they said. I will make the crew understand what I understand, he says. He throws Tommy out of the chair and lifts the little girl and puts her next to Tommy. Where's your friend? The stowaway. Why isn't he here? We're not afraid of you, says the kids. Good, but your leader is. He's not afraid of anything. He is afraid of me. Bring him here. If he can make me believe he is our friend, then I'll follow him to Marcus 12 or wherever he wants to go. Spock then arrives on the bridge. Kirk instructs him to play the chant that the children were singing earlier to summon the Gorgon. Spock plays it, and the Gorgon shows up. Here is the climax. Who has summoned me? I did. My beast is gone. I command again. The Gorgon tells him that the children are strong and obedient. We'll fight you, says Kirk. You'll, You'll be, be destroyed. destroyed. I, would I would ask you, you to join us, but your gentleness is a weakness. Ah, but we are strong, says Kirk. Your, your gentleness is too great and overpowers your strength. You have, you have too, too much, much good, good in you, you just, just like, like the, the parents. parents. Dun, dun, dun. Kirk crosses to the children. He throws up pictures of the kids and their parents playing on Triacus. I, I forbid, forbid it, says Gorgon. Spock says, why should you fear it? I fear nothing. Great. <laughs> then let's see some pics. On the screen, <laughs> on the screen uh, pops up at the picnic of the kids playing volleyball with their parents. Everyone is very happy. We cut to the kids. Even they are smiling. And then, in a very harsh cut, the screen cuts to the parents dead on Triacus. But it works. Suddenly, the kids are sad and confused. They, they would, would not transport, transport us. us. They, they had, had to, to be eliminated, eliminated, says the Gorgon. This strikes me as, like, grammatically punctuated. Yes, definitely. You know, like... Because this is basically what you would do with kids. You know, if you if you, you know, look up advice about how, how to deal with kids in grief, it basically says, ask them to draw pictures about the person who's, you know, and, you know, you're likely to get a bunch of pictures in which they're just doing regular stuff, like, yeah, here he is standing next to a tree. But at some point, you'll get a, like, they'll draw people crying, and why are they crying? Because, you know, so-and-so is gone. And you know, then you'll you'll get the outpouring of emotion and so forth. Right. So this was basically, how do we do that in 30 seconds? And visually. Tommy's father would have destroyed you, says Spock. But he recognized you too late. But, but you, you are, are too, too late. late. The, the kind, kind ones, ones always are. are. Not this time, Gorgon. They see us. 
they see you as we see you. Pictures of their parents continue to continue on the screen. The kids begin to cry. Gorgon continues ranting about the kids being generals and gathering millions of friends, exterminating all of the rest. Kirk comes to the kids. Look at him. He is nothing. And then the Gorgon starts to deform. Carry out your duties or I will destroy you, says the Gorgon. But it's too late to convince the children of anything. Without you, he is nothing, says Kirk. And suddenly, he disappears. The swords on the screen disappear. Uhura smiles, realizing her torment, too, is over. So let's take a minute here to think about the psyche valves that are going to happen after this, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Sulu's is probably a bit milder, right? You know, uh, but Uhura is probably going to have some good PTSD after this, after witnessing her long, prolonged death. So this is basically the, there were like episodes and it's it's a theme in Strange New Worlds. Pike sees his own death in Discovery Season 2, right? Right. And he's still wrestling with it. And like, as you if you've seen the trailers for the, First episode of Strange New Worlds. You know, he's got a beard and he's all like quitting Starfleet. And... Right. So obviously it's the kind of thing that messes you up. Even yeah. if you're, you know, Pike. But, uh... <laughs> but obviously, it'll, it will just, we'll just forget about it by next episode. <laughs> right, of course, of course, because episodic television. Yeah, but I was also thinking about these poor kids, man. Right? I mean, they oh, had, yeah. they were kind of implicit in something that happened to kill their they're, parents. They're going to blame themselves. Yes, they're I mean, obviously it wasn't their fault. They were yeah. being used, but yeah, they're going to blame themselves. I should have fought harder. I should have done this. I should have. Yep. X Y Z. I should have known better. Many years of therapy followed them. Oh yes. McCoy appears on the bridge after it's all over. I don't know what happened, he says, but it's good to see them crying. <laughs> Only in this scenario would it be okay to ever say that. <laughs> the kids then march off the bridge, and Sulu tells, tells, uh, tells them that Marcus 12 is dead ahead. Reverse course and head for Starboys, Starbase 4, he says. Which I ask the question, don't we still have a security team still on Triacus? I thought we did. Oh, Yeah. So, but we'll forget about them. We'll send somebody else to pick them up. Hopefully they're able to figure out how to get some food at some point. Yeah, and, and they don't die by whatever oppressing uh, thing is hanging around. You know, hopefully it left. It's on the ship. Right, yeah, hopefully. So, uh, you've watched uh, Mad Men, have you not? I have, yes. So one of the things that's, as, as children of uh, two parents who both had uh, two master's degrees in various psychology or yep. psychology adjacent professions. Yep. I can't help but watch that and go, these people are living in the time before therapy. They don't <laughs> even have a language for talking about what's bothering them or why they're doing what they're doing. They're right. just like, I'm just, I feel this way. I acted on it. Stuff happened. What, what of it? Right? Yeah. And you look at this episode and it has some like so freud for example wondered if children were capable of grief mm -hmm. right and so there's stuff as we see as we kind of explore in the episode about how children do not respond like adults do to grief uh -huh. they'll 
laugh and feel fine in times where adults are like, no, you should be somber and serious. This is a disturbing thing. Yeah. The kids don't, like, they can't process that, so instead they're just like, I'm going to ignore it. Uh, but then kids might also, like, get their breakfast cereal and start crying. And adults are like, oh, wow, what the heck? Yeah. We're just eating cereal here. <laughs> so, um, you know, post-Freud, we begin to realize that kids do grieve, but they grieve in a more complex way because their understanding is so limited. We kind of right. have to get into the, like, you know, Piaget's levels of understanding kind of before we can make sense of how children grieve. Mm-hmm. But there's this, this problem, right, which we're then addressing in the, in the episode. And I like how they give it some, you know, McCoy's got a name for it. The other thing that's going on here is that the beast is basically the Jungian shadow, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and you can see this in, you know, if once you become acquainted with Jung, you can see other people's shadow and go, oh, that is an ugly thing. Yeah. And if, if you talk to people about their shadow, they'll get upset because they cannot acknowledge this part of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so this episode just feels full of kind of Jung and Freud and, uh, you know, this kind of stuff. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, continuing, I, I don't usually talk a lot about theme. I sometimes leave that up to you to talk about. But, you know, in, interesting questions are obviously raised in this one. You know, we, we have, if nothing else, are people born inherently evil or is there something along the way that sort of steers them that way, you know, and it's up to good people to set them right? Right. That's a that's that's an interesting thought in this one. All criticisms aside, uh, and the children shall lead sent a much needed message to Paramount that Fred Feigerberger was indeed the right producer to take the show within the mandated per episode budget, because this show actually came in 2013 2013 dollars under budget, and even reduced the deficit by that much. That wasn't what they were planning. That's not what they were hoping at showing by the end of this episode, of course. Um, the good news is that the casting of Melvin Belly actually brought about free publicity. Many articles popped up the week that this episode was going to air to talk about Star Trek, or to talk about him being in this episode of Star Trek, including the TV Guide for October 5th, 1968. As far as ratings go, Star Trek was again in second place behind the Friday night movie on CBS. So we continue to see that it wasn't the it wasn't the ratings that drove Trek from TV. So we've talked about how the network did not realize that they were getting a core demographic that they really wanted. Right. We've talked about how they didn't like Roddenberry. He was difficult. Yep. I think that's another thing that, like, nobody, not even the cast or Roddenberry himself, uh, nobody seemed to understand what they had, right? That this was, I mean, for us looking back on it, Star Trek is literally canonical. Yes. It's, uh, it's huge. It goes on to, I mean, right now, Paramount is basically saying, we're betting the farm on Star Trek. We're going to show it all the time. Yep. 12 months a year. Yeah, we're going to have all kinds of shows. We're going to have a Georgiou show. We're going to have Strange New Worlds. We're going to have a Picard. We're going to have Lower Decks. We're going to have Prodigy. We're going to have, you know, they're talking about other things. Maybe we'll have, we'll do a a spinoff from Picard where 
uh, you know, seven of nine, and one of the other characters are fighting crime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, smugglers, and, right? Uh, but you know, so they just didn't know mm-hmm. that, like, that we're not just making another half hour or hour of television. This is we're making art, or we're making something that will last, or something that will have you know residuals. We're making an I Love Lucy. Right. They got no idea, so. You know, and you can imagine lots and lots of television from that era, most of which we've forgotten. Mm -hmm. We can remember some of it, but it's not like Bonanza is pulling in a bunch of dollars today. True. You know, so there's a a couple of TV shows. Uh, We've mentioned Andy Griffith a time or two. Yep. That one, he probably... Still pulling in some dollars. Yep. I think there's a few other shows that are still people watch it, but nobody knew that they had something special. Yeah. And that it was worth a little bit extra, a little bit of care. Yep. Time and money. Yep. That's all they needed a little time and money. Yep. So speaking about all the other Star Treks, did you see the new trailer for Picard season three? I have not. Oh, well, I posted it on the uh, on the Facebook page, so you should go take a look at it because I have, a, I have abandoned Facebook. <laughs> everybody's coming back, so that's yeah, yeah. Back. Well, I knew that because they talked about it when the cast signed. Mm, okay, cool. I did. I did not know that. So suddenly, I'm like seeing everybody's names pop up oh. in the trailer, and I'm like, oh boy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen a like photos and so forth where they're all standing there smiling. Yep. Oh, that's great. At the, at the, I guess the casting announcement or whatever it was. Well, that is totes fun. So the funny thing, so to wrap up this episode, the funny thing is of course, is that as we are talking about things that went wrong with this episode, things that are going to continue to haunt us going into uh, further into season three, the funny thing about all of this is that it leads into our next episode. Spock's brain. So I, I don't think this was a bad episode. I know. Well, you'll get to talk about it all next week. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about the episode that we just watched. Oh, okay, fair. Um, Spock's Brain is an episode that, that more than this one just doesn't come off right. It's got good ideas. It's got ideas that I think would be very interesting in science fiction even today. Yeah. It's just that the way they, the way they execute it, is obviously they needed a little more time. The script needed more work. Yep. Um, and they, they needed to spend some money on production that they simply did not have. Mm-hmm. And that probably nobody would have had unless they were making, you know, 2000 a Space Odyssey. Right. This episode that we just watched, The Children Shall Lead, you know, when I watch it, I'm not like, oh, this was, this was an hour I'll never get back. And in this land of abundant Trek, I, you know, I could be watching all kinds of different Star Trek, right? Right. I could be watching Next Generation, DS9, Enterprise, or Strange New Worlds, which I'm loving. Um, but I found, like, this was good, good TV. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. I liked it. I mean, I can tell this is not the Enterprise incident or... Mm-hmm. or right. Um, you know, some of the really good episodes from season one or so forth. Right. But it's not bad Trek. And I didn't, I, so I understand how it doesn't, 
it could have been better, and we know that. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't, I don't feel it while I'm watching it. Right. You know, it's it's uh, like you know what fridge logic is, right? Yes. Yeah. So in fridge criticism, I could be like, yeah, they probably could have worked out some of that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. This this probably would have benefited from a little more money and a little more time. But I, I didn't feel that watching it. Whereas Fox Brain, I do feel this is a good episode. It's got good bones. It's got a good foundation. Yeah. It just uh, was executed poorly. Yeah. And if you're willing to like overlook that, I think you can still enjoy Spock's brain. Mm-hmm. You just have to be willing to overlook a lot. Right. Well, it's funny because as we talk about as we were talking about this episode and the criticisms against it, a lot of that I felt was actually uh, I, I mean, watching it, I thought oh, yeah, it's a fine episode. It's not top notch right. Trek, but it's fine episode. And the and thing is, really... in a long running TV show, there's a lot of those episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially twenty doing twenty four episodes and yeah. on a budget and on a you know on a Titan budget and all of those things that we've discussed. But it's funny because once I started reading the book and getting the behind the scenes of this episode, that it was really that I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. That was a little faulty, and yeah, that didn't work for me either. But blah blah. blah. So it was really interesting to see what the book was talking about as far as what the problems were with this episode, as opposed to um, as opposed to what I really felt watching it. So yeah, well, you know, I, I'm watching. Uh... Um, this there's this other channel. It's a uh, uh, a network executive reacts. Uh-huh. There's a production executive for I believe Canadian television. Okay. Right. Although he's also got some LA experience, but I, I think he was a network executive in Canada. Okay. And he talks a lot about Star Trek, right? Yeah. And one of his one of his uh, you know criticisms is the like, do we do we get to see the characters being good at science, uh-huh. right? And as he mentioned in one of them, I enjoyed watching it. It was only upon reflection I was like, where was the science? How come they didn't do this scientifically? How come they didn't do that scientifically? And it's true. We've got, I think, episodes three and four have more science, mm-hmm. right? Or they talk about it more. There's also lots of stuff. So, for example, in episode four, they show a black hole. Mm-hmm. And what they show us is based on, and this is very Star Trek, right? I and mean, we've covered this kind of stuff where they have science advisors who tell them, like, how would this work in real life? And they show what a black hole probably would look like yeah. if witnessed according to current theory of what a black hole might look like. But they never mention that. They only show it to us. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there's science happening, but it's not part of the story. It's not, it's not verbalized. Right. Right. So when you're looking at cool stuff. Um, and of course, part of it's that they have the budget to do that. Right. Yeah. And there's also, I think, like. Maybe the notion of show, not tell is playing a role in this. Mm-hmm. The problem is, if you don't tell us scientifically what that there's science here. You know, what's the difference between science and magic? Yeah. Right. The, the difference is the procedural steps one takes. Do I do I throw my arm down and chant for the, the cheerful angel to come and visit us? Or yeah. do I say, well, I'm bombarding it with uh, antiprotons? 
Well, it's funny because I feel like that's a thing that, especially in next generation, that we get a little more, that we get a lot more of is, you know, obviously scientific answers for it. I even feel like that happens a lot in Doctor Who. Like there's never yeah. actually an evil entity. It's always like, well, it's based on this science and blah, blah, blah. And I really did feel like in this episode, we were dealing a lot more with an evil entity as opposed yeah. to, uh, as opposed to something that like, oh, well, he is a, you know, uh, uh, a, 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 a creature who you know lives off of children's thoughts or you know something like that or, or you know because there's some kind of signature in their yeah <laughs> in kids I, I kind of felt that this was a horror episode in which we uh the colonist accidentally opened a tomb right from which an ancient horror has emerged the mummy and, okay and now the crew has to deal with it yeah 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 and if if you're watching a horror show and you watch the archaeologist lifting the lid to the thing and you're like, bum, bum, bum. You know, the music is telling you bad yep. things are about to happen. You know, oh, my goodness, they're going to release an ancient evil. Uh-huh. You know, and if instead what they find is, you know, like some decomposed dude and then they start like measuring the rib cage and, and like, uh, you know, figuring out male or female. What was the age at death of this figure? Do we have yeah. any indications of which for? Oh, I think this is definitely 13th Dynasty. Or, you know, then you're like, wait a minute. I thought we were going to get like a horror episode. And instead, we get archaeology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this case, what we really get is a horror episode. Just And we, we get some of those early, right? We have the one where Jack the Ripper shows up. and <laughs> Yeah. It's not like it's unheard of for Star Trek. There's the next generation one where uh, Crusher falls in love with some evil entity. That's right. Or, uh, or or Troy and her baby. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up here <laughs> on the horror, horror episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin and coming to you from Planet Houston's my brother, Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. A doctor, not a child. It's like, wait a minute. That is a doctor. <laughs> and on that bombshell <laughs> we'll see everyone in a couple of weeks <laughs> <laughs>